Have you ever seen the 2007 comedy called The Bucket List? Have you seen that movie before? It's kind of a fun comedy. If you haven't seen it, allow me to recount a little bit of the plot. Morgan Freeman uh, is one of the main characters, and he plays a man named Carter who's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He's a blue-collar mechanic, a hard-working guy, and he's in the hospital inpatient getting some treatment before he's been released to go on and enjoy the rest of his life, though he only has a limited time to live. While he's in the hospital, he meets another man who happens to be uh, his roommate. His name's Edward Cole, and he comes from the total opposite end of life. He's a billionaire hospital tycoon. He's the owner of the hospital that they're staying, and the only reason that he's staying in a room with Carter is because it'd be a bad look for the owner of the hospital to the only person who doesn't have to share a room in the hospital. So these two doesn't look like they should ever become friends, but they become friends when Morgan Freeman starts talking about his bucket list. And the two of them travel on Cole's private jet all around the world, checking thing after thing off of the list of things they want to do before they die. They're both diagnosed with terminal cancer. They both have a limited time to live. They do some things that maybe are on your bucket list. They climb the pyramids in Giza. They take a hike on the Great Wall. They race sport cars on the California Speedway. That would be sick. They do all of these different things. Uh, they do a safari in Tanzania. They go skydiving. They visit Mount Everest. It's quite a list. But it's all because of their terminal diagnosis. It's because they received news that changed the trajectory of their life. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about life-changing, life-altering news. It wasn't a terminal cancer diagnosis, but we learned from Second Peter that Jesus could come back at any moment. In theological terms, his return is what we call imminent. It can happen at any time, at any moment. Jesus could come back and that'd be it. it, There'd be an end of our earthly life. We'd be ushered into eternity. It could happen in a blink of an eye like a thief in the night. So then there's a logical follow-up question, isn't there? If Jesus could come back at any moment, then what should my life look like in light of Jesus' return? How should I live? Have you ever thought about that before? Should we set up an outpost with a telescope so that we can see Jesus coming on the clouds, that I can be the first one to see Jesus and I can tweet about it, right? Is that the goal? No, because no one except Elon Musk is on Twitter anyway, right? (laughs) Or do you grab a megaphone and start street preaching and saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand? Maybe. Or do we just sit on our couch and play Xbox and watch Netflix and say, yeah, whatever, I don't really care that much anyway. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back. No, how do we live our life? So a couple weeks ago, uh, after, that, after that night, I was with one of our small groups, and I asked the following question. If you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus was going to come back on Saturday, it's coming Saturday, what would your life look like this week? And I'm saying, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know Jesus sends you that DM on Instagram, you know it's him, and he says, I'm coming back on Saturday. What would your life look like? You quit your job? Yeah, or maybe you wouldn't even show up to work. Maybe there'd be a lot of evangelism. You probably wouldn't sleep. You maybe wouldn't eat. It'd be a sprint until Jesus came back. Now, is that the way that Jesus wants us to live our life every day? With the expectancy that he is certainly going to come back on Saturday? My answer might surprise you, but I'd say no. We miss the whole point of the mystery of Jesus' return. 
that encourages us, empowers us to live with faithfulness. The whole point of the mystery is that we balance expectancy and faithfulness. If, if we knew the exact day that Jesus would return, do you know what even the best of us would do? Procrastinate. We would. We'd put all the important things off until the end, right before he came back. The point is that we don't know the day or the hour. Think of it this way. This week is finals week for many colleges and universities across the country. I know I just caused anxiety for most of you just by using those two words in a sentence, and I apologize. But remember back to college, if you went to college, remember the first week of class and you'd get a syllabus. Imagine that a professor in your course uh, says, you're only going to be evaluated on one thing in this entire class, one final exam. It's happening Final exam week at the end of the semester, that's the only thing. It's 100% of your grade. It's going to be a really hard exam. It's pass or fail. 80% passes, 79% fails. You've got to pass. What would even the best students in the class do? Procrastinate, right? They'd put off studying at least until a couple weeks prior to the exam because you know that you've got time. Compare that with a professor, first day of class, hands out the syllabus and says, Throughout the course, you're going to be evaluated five times, but I'm not going to tell you when the exams, when the quizzes are going to be. They could be at any class. They're going to happen randomly. You've got to show up to every class ready to take the test. In that case, what does the best student do? They study every single day, always showing up to class ready to take the exam. That's what Jesus' return looks like because we don't know the day. We don't know the hour, and we're expected to live in a way of constant preparation. Faithfulness and the uncertainty is far more revealing about our hearts than one predictable final exam. And since we don't know when Jesus is going to return, then we have to live in a state of expectancy and readiness. Yeah, we might be a little bit surprised if Jesus returned today, but I certainly hope that we wouldn't be disappointed, embarrassed, or stunned. I'm thankful for how Peter finishes his letter. He's not ambiguous. He provides, he provides real, concrete expectations for what it looks like to you and, for you and I to live in a state of expectancy. So often, the Christian life becomes a list of things that you shouldn't do, a don't list. Don't smoke, don't gossip, don't swear, don't sleep around, don't get drunk, don't lie, don't steal... And that becomes the sum of the Christian life. You ever felt like that before? That's not what Peter does tonight. It's not a don't list. It's a, a do list. It's a be list. Because we could certainly come up with a long list of things that we certainly don't want to be doing when Jesus returns, certainly things that we don't want to be caught doing when Jesus comes back. But that's not the list he provides tonight. He provides a list of things that we need to be doing, a way that we need to live our life. Because if we just reduce the Christian walk to things we shouldn't be doing, we miss the point of growing in a genuine, real relationship with Christ. There's certainly a time and a place for that, but that's not what Peter does with our text tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 3. As Peter wraps up the letter, I'm going to start in verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll read through verse 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We've got to understand the context. Verse 11 says, these things, what are these things? Well, verse before, he's talking about the heavens and the earth. Heavens, in this case, will be the celestial beings, the sun, moon, and stars, and the earth are stored up for fire. They're going to be dissolved. He says in verse 10 that the works on the earth are going to be exposed. He's talking about the day of the Lord, a day of dual fulfillment, wrath and judgment for those who are ungodly, but rescue and redemption for the righteous, for those who believe in Christ. In my opinion, I I think the ESV translation is a little bit clunky here. Maybe a more readable translation for verse 11 would, would sound like this. Considering the coming day of God, what sort of people should you be? Live holy and godly lives. That's what he's saying. Live a holy life and live a godly life. It just doesn't get a lot clearer than that. Four ideas tonight, four ways that we can be prepared for Jesus' return. Here's the first, be holy. Be holy. God expects us to live a holy life and a godly life. For us, our personal holiness is grounded, is rooted in the holiness of God. God's holiness means at least two things. First, it means that God is separate from us. He's on another plane compared to us. But God's holiness also means that he's morally flawless and perfect. He's without sin. Can't even tolerate the presence of sin in his presence. I don't know if you've understood this before, but holiness is a requirement for a right relationship with God. That if you or I want to have an eternal relationship with God, we want to be with him for all of eternity, we've got to be holy. More than relatively holy, we have to be absolutely holy, perfect, and morally flawless. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Covenant laid out in the first five books of of Scripture. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Something has to die for us to live. And as the Israelites offered sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were offering temporary atonement for their sin. Think of one aspect of the Old Covenant. One day, once a year, the high priest would enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the manifest presence of God dwelled within the tabernacle and then within the temple. He would enter in to the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. He'd have the blood of sacrifice and he'd pour it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence resided above the Ark of the Covenant, but what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, a number of things, but the most important for our talk tonight is the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments. Not sure you can name them all. Usually I forget at least one when I try to name all ten. But it's a ten-question evaluation of our own holiness. And if we took the test tonight, even looking at your Monday, how many of those Ten Commandments would we Uh, have not succeeded in today? Well, probably at least a handful because none of us are perfect. You and I aren't, neither were the Israelites. But think of the significance that when the high priest would come in with the blood of the sacrifice, he'd put that on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So as the manifest presence of God resided above the Ark, as he looked upon the Ten Commandments, what did he look through? The blood, the blood of the sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It was through the blood that provided temporary atonement for the sin of the people. But it was incomplete, wasn't it? 
They had to keep entering into the holy place year after year after year, continually offering the sacrifices of unblemished animals day after day after day to atone for their sin. It was incomplete. But not only was it incomplete, it foreshadowed the new covenant. It foreshadowed the coming of the perfect, unblemished lamb who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus. He was holy in thought and attitude and action. He never sinned. And he was the unblemished lamb. Isaiah says, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. He continues in Isaiah 53 and says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sin, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice that when he cried out to Telestai, it is finished on the cross, that the entire debt of sin, past, present, and future, was paid for at the cross. There was no need for further sacrifices. There was no need for the priest to enter into the most holy place once a year because the, the temple curtain was torn in two. And Jesus paid the price of all sin. He satisfied the righteous wrath of the Father. But the principle applies for us that for you and I to live, for you and I to have forgiveness, something, someone must die. Without the shedding of blood, we can't be forgiven. And either we pay for the penalty of our own sin for all of eternity, or we trust the sacrifice of Christ for us. We either trust Jesus' resume, his holiness, or our resume. And our resume is never going to suffice. This is a free gift of salvation that has to be received by faith, by believing that when Jesus died, he paid for our sin. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you've placed your trust in Christ. But let me get a little bit theological to tie all of this together. At the moment of salvation, when you believe in Christ, a number of things happen all at the same time. Let me just highlight one. The moment you believe in Jesus, you are justified. Justified. It comes from the Greek word dikaiosune. It means that God imputes Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' holiness on us. Imputes just means to place onto that when someone believes in Christ, God takes the perfect, flawless, obedient resume of Jesus and places it onto our account. We switch accounts. Jesus took our sin, he paid for it on the cross, and we get his perfect, his imputed righteousness. When we are justified, God doesn't make us holy. He declares us holy. Don't miss that. When we're justified, God doesn't make us righteous. He declares us to be righteous. It doesn't sound like a big difference, but the difference is massive. It's huge because we get Jesus' resume. We get Jesus' righteousness. Have we ever considered how incredible this is, that we don't deserve this, we can't earn this, that God gives us the perfect obedience of Christ? We get Jesus' obedience, credit to our account when we believe in Christ, that our debt of sin is paid in full. Jesus' holiness replaces our sin. He declares us to be holy. But also at the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit begins a process that we call sanctification. Now, sanctification is simply growing in holiness. It's growing to look more like Jesus. Do you understand the difference? At the moment of our salvation, we're justified. We're 
declared to be holy, but then the Holy Spirit begins a process of sanctification. He's making us holy, but that process isn't completed until we're glorified, until we meet Jesus. The distinction is key. Friends, if you know Christ, you are already declared to be holy through what Christ has done, through his sacrifice on our behalf. And we respond to our justification with obedience. So then why would we go back to sin? Why would we go back to the thing that was killing us, that was alienating us from God? Because we still battle the flesh, that there's still this remnant of our old selves that tries to pull us back to what used to satisfy. But the thing with sin is it always overpromises and underdelivers. It says, yeah, you're going to be more satisfied than you can imagine. It's not true. But sin minimizes the consequences. Those are two lies that we believe every time that we give in to temptation. Overpromises and underdelivers. But that sin, it still separates us from God. Not in a salvific way. Once we believe in Christ, once we're adopted into his family, we can't become unadopted. But it still creates a divide in our relationship with him, just as sin would create a divide in our relationship with one another. Think of 1 Peter 1.16. Peter's quoting from Leviticus where God says, be holy because I am holy. God's holiness motivates our holiness. We need to seek to live in a way that not only pleases God, but reflects the nature and character of God. This begins with living lives of personal holiness and godliness. Are you living like God? Are you living in a way that reflects his glory and his greatness? Are we living in a way that honors him and pleases him. Certainly, holiness is a two-sided coin. There's a list of things that we should do and a list of things that we shouldn't do. And every corresponding vice has a corresponding virtue, doesn't it? Because the opposite of gossip is encouragement. The opposite of greed is generosity. The opposite of immorality is purity. The opposite of whining is gratitude. The opposite of deceit is honesty. Think about the positive side of the list. Are we pursuing generosity? Are we pursuing gratitude? Are we pursuing purity? Are we pursuing contentment? Are we pursuing hearts of gratitude and thankfulness? But even more importantly, holiness is not simply the pursuit of a virtuous life. Holiness is the pursuit of a holy God. Instead of just pursuing living rightly, we need to pursue God himself. Are we spending time with him? Are we talking to him? Are we engaging in spiritual disciplines that grow our heart's affections toward him? We become like those we spend the most time with. The more time we spend with God, the more like him we will become and the more we'll reflect his glory. That's the first way we prepare for Jesus' coming is by living lives of holiness. We have to be holy. Look again at verse 12 from our text waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Let me pause there. The coming of Christ. It's the Greek word parousia. Maybe you've heard that before. It's where we get our word Advent. If you're following the church calendar, if you were at Highland with us yesterday, we're in the third week of Advent. Advent simply means coming. Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' first Advent, his first coming. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the second advent, the second coming, the parousia. It's all phrases that, are mean, that mean the same thing, the second coming of Christ. If we're honest, it's easy to live distracted lives. 
as we live between the advents, to essentially live like Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon, to live like the, the first example of a college class, pretending that that exam is far off in the future, that we don't have to be prepared. We get preoccupied with work and with life and with relationships and with money and with hobbies, with our phones. When was the last time we asked, I wonder if Jesus could come back today? When was the last time that I asked, how would my life change if I asked every day, what if Jesus came back today? A state of expectancy is not a state of passivity. A state of expectancy means that we show up at that college class each day wondering, today could be the day. That's our second principle tonight is be eager, be eager. Another way to translate that word waiting is to look forward, to anticipate with excitement. We need to look ahead to the second coming like a toddler looks ahead to Christmas morning with eagerness, with excitement. But it's the second half of that phrase that I find even more intriguing. Maybe you noticed more than just waiting for Jesus' return with excitement, we get to hasten his coming. Did you catch that? What in the world does that mean? I'm really glad you asked. It comes from the Greek word spudo, not spudo, spudo. (laughs) And it literally means to speed along, to advance, to hurry up, to, to cause something to happen sooner, to hasten Jesus' return. I have to go to some other passages to understand what Peter means. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22, same word, listen for it. Then the last one shall become a clan. He's talking about the day of eternity. The smallest one, a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. I will speed it along. Interesting. Peter uses the same word to suggest that somehow, by our behavior, we can hasten, we can speed along the return of Christ by something that we do. Thankfully, there's some other passages that might give us an idea of what he's talking about. Even think of what we talked about two weeks ago, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that God is not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to reach repentance. It might look from human perspective that the return of Jesus is delayed, but the delay is actually God's patience, desiring that no one perishes, but that all would reach repentance Jesus' return might look delayed so that people have time to repent. Peter actually uses a a similar analogy in a sermon in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 19. says this, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's subtle, but Peter's making a connection between the coming of Christ and repentance, that God is giving time for people to repent. It's almost as if, from our perspective, that the return of Christ is not a fixed date, but rather something that believers can hasten by living in a godly way. Now, the key phrase in that sentence is from our perspective. 
trying really hard not to be an ultra crepidarian. If you're here with us two weeks ago, we're trying to wrap our mind around how God uses time. It's really hard for us to do that. But it's almost as if from our perspective that the return of Christ is not necessarily a fixed date, but rather something believers can hasten by living in a godly, godly way. Specifically, what, what type of godly way are we talking about? I think specifically it's evangelism. It's sharing the gospel. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. Listen to these words, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then how then will they believe or call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's outlining the importance of evangelism, the importance of going and of sharing our faith. How are people to hear unless we go and share? Putting all the pieces together without getting a headache, God can speed up or slow down the second coming based on his sovereign plan and the faithful obedience of Christ followers, namely evangelism. That's what Jesus says, I believe, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, ethnos, people groups, and then the end will come. Interesting. So the end won't come until the gospel is proclaimed to all nations. It's communicating that the day of the Lord won't come until the gospel advances throughout the world. There's a couple different ways to interpret what Jesus would mean by nations there. How some interpret that is he's talking about people groups. There's over 7,000 people groups in our world uh, today. No, 17,000 people groups in our world today. People of a distinct culture, a distinct language, a distinct belief system. And that would raise the stakes for cross-cultural missions, wouldn't it? It's one of the reasons why many mission agencies have focused on sharing the gospel to people who don't have access to it, who've never heard before. It's why organizations are seeking to translate scripture into the language of people who don't have the Bible in their own language. If you're seeking to bring the gospel to people who've never heard it before, maybe people in another culture, maybe your, your heart is set on going to a nation that doesn't have access to scripture. That's an incredible goal. And I believe what this text is saying is that those people who share the gospel in that way, they're hastening the coming of Christ. Maybe that's something each of us could consider. What would it look like for us to say, Lord, I'll go, send me. Going to the front lines, sharing the good news of the gospel with people who've never heard it before. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But our heart for evangelism, it starts here, doesn't it? We don't have to go to a remote jungle in the Amazon or a remote tribe to share the gospel. No, it starts with our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our communities, our neighbors. If we're honest, sometimes sharing the good news of Christ with those around us can be even harder with those we don't know. We need to make sharing the gospel a priority for us. But I know what you're thinking because it's a really good question. How can the target date of the second coming change? Is that even orthodox? Because God knows the future. He controls the future. Of course he knows the day that Jesus is going to come back. But at the same time, believers can hasten, speed along the second coming. How do those two things fit together? It's what we talked about two weeks ago. The way that God uses time as the creator of time is beyond our comprehension. 
there's going to be some things that you and I are going to put in our theological mystery box, and this is going to be one of them. How can God know the future, control the future, know the exact day that Jesus is going to return, and at the same time, believers can hasten that day? I don't know. I don't know how those two things fit together. It's in my theological mystery box. Here's another great example, very similar. Think of prayer. God knows the future. God controls the future. Yet think of what James says. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer influences the plan of a sovereign God, yet God knows the future and controls the future. How in the world do those two things fit together? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. But we have to hold to both. There's some things, including the timing of the second coming, what it looks like for believers to hasten Jesus' return, that have to go in our theological mystery box. But as we eagerly await for Christ's second coming, then we can speed along his return by fulfilling his great commission, by going into all the world and sharing the gospel of all nations, to all nations. God in his grace, verse 9 in 2 Peter 3, has deferred the second coming, providing people a chance to repent. But we, in turn, can hasten the second coming by calling people to repentance and faith. Look at verse 14 from our text. In this gospel, which means good news, this gospel of the kingdom, and I'm not even in the right chapter. Let's try that again. <laughs> Let's try uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Those are the only two words we get in all, all of this passage of describing the new heaven and the new earth. If you want to learn more about what that's going to be like, go to the end of Revelation where John paints a beautiful picture of what the new heaven and new earth will be like, but that's all we get. Righteousness dwells. But it's powerful, isn't it? <laughs> Do we live in a world where righteousness dwells today? Not really. Actually, no, not at all. We live in a world that's filled with evil, with sin, with immorality, both outside and if we're honest, there's a sliver that exists in our hearts. But in the new heavens and the new earth, unrighteousness inside and out will be erased forever. And since we're waiting for that day, we have to be diligent. Since we're not there yet, since we're still surrounded by evil, since we still face the daily battle against temptation, we have to be disciplined to fight well. That's number three tonight is be diligent. Be diligent. Don't be lulled to sleep in your battle against temptation. Don't forget that we have a, a spiritual enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. Don't forget that we fight a battle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this dark world. We need to be diligent, not falling asleep at our post. But I'm thankful that this is just a temporary diligence because the day is coming when we get to eternity. We're not going to have to be on our guard anymore. We're not going to have to worry about fighting temptation when our spiritual enemy, Satan, will be defeated once and for all. But until then, don't fall asleep. Until then, be diligent and be disciplined. But I love the last word in verse 14. Be at peace. We know how the story ends. Therefore, our threshold for anxiety, for stress, for withstanding pain has to be higher than those around us. We can have peace in the midst of political turmoil because we know someday Jesus is going to be on the throne. 
We can have peace in the midst of a job that causes stress because someday that job is going to be a faint memory. We can have peace through chronic pain because the pain, though severe, though something that you're begging God to take away every day, it's a reminder that our body here is just a tent. We can have peace when experiencing the loss or a family, a friend, because we know that someday we'll see them again in eternity if they know Christ. We can have peace in the midst of global conflicts and interpersonal conflicts because they're not going to last forever. Number four, we have to be peaceful. Be peaceful. We're in the midst of a month where people talk about peace all the time. Peace on earth. We sing about it. We talk about it. We tweet about it. We send Christmas cards about it. But I hope that we can allow the second coming to provide even more peace than the first. Because life today is not easy, but we have a perspective that surpasses our present circumstances. We know how the story ends, and that can provide peace. Well, as the passage continues, Peter goes on a little bit of a a tangent, and he accuses Paul's letters of being confusing. Don't believe me? Read the last part of 2 Peter. Which I find ironic because, in my opinion, Peter has some of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament, and then he says Paul's confusing, whatever. But then as he continues, he calls Paul's letters Scripture, which is a really important verse on the inerrancy, the inspiration of of Scripture. But here's what I want to finish. I want to finish with how Peter finishes, verse 18, the last verse of the book. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To Jesus be the glory. Maybe you've memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that the verse we just read? To glorify Christ, to enjoy him forever. Glory, it's kind of a confusing word, isn't it? We think about glory, it's both literal and figurative. Glory literally is the the aura of manufactured, of created brightness that surrounds the revealed presence, the manifest presence of God. If you or I were to behold God's glory now, what would happen? We'd be gone. We would cease to exist, at least in this life. God's glory now is too much for us to behold. We'd die instantly. So do we seek after God's glory in a literal sense? Well, not now but we're looking ahead to the day when we'll behold his glory and live, when we'll be able to experience 100% of his majestic greatness and, and not fall over dead. That'll be an incredible day, beholding his glory. But until then, we're seeking his glory in a, a figurative way, his honor, his excellence, seeking to live in a way that reflects his glory. We live in a culture that has trained us from a very young age <laughs> to be glory robbers, to seek glory for ourselves, to absorb the glory that God deserves. But may we be glory reflectors, walking in obedience, not seeking to make a name, a kingdom for ourselves, but seeking to make a name, a kingdom for our Heavenly Father. Think of what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3. He was talking about Jesus. He said, may he become greater and greater. May I become less and less. That's what it means to glorify Christ, that over time, our own greatness diminishes, and Jesus' greatness in our life increases. May that be our prayer tonight. Let's pray.
Father, it's hard to believe that we're wrapping up a, a semester in Second Peter tonight. Um, we're, just, we're thankful for the opportunity to dive into your word and to study it together. Um, I'm encouraged by each person here tonight that um, set aside the, the busyness of the season, of the busyness of the month of December, and, and on a Monday night, just choosing to, to come to spend time in community and in your word. Um, that encourages me, and may, it, um, may you bless each person here tonight and may our time continue just to be fruitful and engaging and encouraging uh, to our hearts as we walk with you. Allow us to live uh, in a state of expectancy, balancing both the expectancy and the faithfulness, knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment, but we don't know what moment that's going to be. Uh, so allow us to live uh, with faithfulness, not being caught off guard, not being embarrassed, but being excited and eager, waiting anxiously for Jesus' return. Thanks for our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.